she was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I am here today with a returning guest, Reverend Dr. Barbara Gorski, a.k.a. my mom. Hi, mom. You could say something. Hi. I'm I'm excited to be here with you, Sarah. Well, I'm so glad to have you back and so excited to have you join in on this series. If you're listening for the first time, here's what you need to know right off the bat. We are in the middle of a series, They Called Them Crazy. And each week we're looking into the life and legacy of a woman whom society at some point dubbed crazy. And why were they called crazy? Were they certifiably insane by today's standards? Or were there other reasons that they were called such in their lifetime? And that is what we are interested in finding out. And we split this rich subject matter into a few mini-series. We started with prolific broads, and then we moved into the next mini-series, visionary broads, which is where we're at right now. So we started with the legacy of Hildegard von Bingen, who was both prolific and a visionary, actually. And then we talked about Catherine of Siena last week and her mystical marriage to Jesus. I should also say, longtime listeners, you might remember. Reverend Gorski joined us at the beginning of the year and she talked about Sister Carrie Miller. And she was just one of the nun broads we've talked about on this podcast until these visionary broads these last few weeks. So it felt like an appropriate time to have her back because we're talking about another sister, another nun. And that is Teresa de Cepeda y Ahumada, also known as Saint Teresa of Jesus or mom, what's her common name? Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Avila. And mom, she's familiar to you before I asked you to, to come on the podcast, right? Yes, yes. I've actually done quite a bit of reading on her and studying her life. Did you study her as part of your seminary curriculum or just kind of outside of it on your own? So I, you know, I did a little bit uh, in, in seminary work, but really on my own. And I've always been interested in, in the mystics. And just their understanding of how they have these spiritual experiences with God or, or, or with Jesus, as, as she writes about. And so I've always been interested in her life. So that's, what, that's the reason. Yeah. I mean, she is very interesting. And all these women have been so fascinating to dig into. So listeners who don't know who the heck we're talking about, let's go back to the very beginning. Teresa was born on March 28th in 1515 in Avila, Spain. I looked it up on the map and that's like right in the middle of Spain. By, it's about an hour and a half drive from Madrid in to, on today's roads. And so the first question we always ask when we talk about like some of these older broads slash not contemporaries is what is the world like in 1515. And in England, there's a lot going on. Mary Tudor marries Charles Brandon. Thomas Wolseley is made cardinal and chancellor. All that drama in the in the English church um, approaching Henry VIII happens a little bit after this. The conquistadors are landing in Havana, Cuba, and the French are beating back the Swiss and retaking Milan, which at the time was a huge deal. Now most of us probably don't even know that happened. And Raphael was painting the Vatican at this time period. We're in the middle of the Renaissance period, post-Black Death and all of these people who died in, in the plague, right? But in Spain, they're undergoing some different and really intense times. 
I'm going to take a quick second before we circle back to Teresa to talk specifically about Spanish history at this time period. Because I, when I started my research, Mom, I didn't actually know anything about Spanish history. Do you know much about that time period? No, I really don't. Not very much looking just at Spain. Well, it, so in the, so taking it back a couple centuries, in 8th century, a lot of Spain had been conquered by the Muslim Umayyads. So it was an Islamic state. And the stubborn Christians retreated kind of up into the northwest corner of Spain. And central and south Spain were almost entirely under Islamic rule. And things that actually, like, I, you know, I think now when we say Islamic rule in the Islamic state, we think about Iraq and Afghanistan and some of these, you know, more extreme sects of Islam, right? Um, but back then, it was not like that. So we have to divorce ourselves from what is what is now, you know, extreme Islamic states and and then and under their rule in Spain at this time period there was a there was relative peace Muslims and Christians and Jews were all living together and there was about 200 years or so when everyone was really kind of flourishing they built these beautiful mosques and they all had peace amongst them fast forward those 200 years and in the 11th century all of this changes with mom can you guess what happens go ahead you tell me the crusades of course. So the Christian holy wars, the impetus for it is to retake Jerusalem and retake the Holy Land from the Muslims. But the Crusades become a war kind of against all Muslim rule. And that includes Spain. So in Spain, this period of time is known as the Reconquista. And it lasts a really long time. It starts around the 11th century, so about 1,000. And then these wars kind of go on until the beginning of the 13th century, so almost 200 years. And then the Christians start to gain back some of the land. And this is partially due to the fact that the church was sending its soldiers, its knights, its, its holy knights. They were all kind of coming in from all these corners of Europe. And so they started to get more and more forces. And finally, at the end of the 15th century, in 1492... So 1492, this is 23 years before Teresa is born. The two major Spanish kingdoms are Aragon and Castile. They unite and they push out the last of the Muslims. And Spain is fully under Christian rule. And led by a king and queen, 1492, do you, know who, do you remember who the king and queen were at that time? Oh, yeah, I don't. Well, you do, because you tell me. You've been doing the research. Well, it was the same year that, that uh, of the, the infamous Columbus was sent by Ferdinand and Isabella. Interesting. They desired, as rulers, they desired not just political unity, but also religious unity across Spain. Once they won, once everything was united, it was a living hell for the Muslims and Jews who were living there. All non-Christians were being punished frequently, burned at the stake, and people were terrified. And about 150,000 people flee to Northern Africa that was still under Muslim control. And then a whole lot of other folks renounce their religions and convert to Christianity pretty quickly because you kind of had to do that to survive. And so now we're circling back to Teresa and her paternal grandfather had been Jewish. Yes, I read that. And so in all of these upheavals and wars, he converts to Christianity because he needs to stay alive and he doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to go to Africa. At some point when his son, Teresa's dad, was very little, the Spanish Inquisition comes for him and they allege that he has returned to the Jewish, Jewish faith 
But he was able to convince them he was a true convert. They eventually give up their fight. Now, this was common. You know, it was the equivalent of kind of the Salem, you know, the witch hunts, the trials. They were going after anyone that was not Christian. And so they had this inquisition and everybody was suspect and everybody was questioned and everybody was punished if they were found to be guilty. Right. But he was not found to be guilty. Um, and then Teresa's dad grew up to become a pretty successful wool merchant. And he became one of the wealthiest men in Avila. And he was able to buy apparently a knighthood. And with all this kind of success and wealth and knighthood, he's able to kind of shake off the stigma of his dad's Jewish heritage. And he really fully assimilates into Christianity. And he did, he had a first wife before he married um, Teresa's mother. The sources didn't say, I'm assuming his first wife died in in childbirth or from some other reason, because they didn't divorce back then. <laughs> not good Christians did not divorce. And so her dad had three previous children from his, his previous marriage. And then he marries Teresa's mom and Teresa is born in 1515. So she's the fourth child. And they were a quote, dedicated Christian house. And I would imagine after the inquisition, <laughs> that, that being a, a very dedicated Christian house was like <laughs> pretty important, right? <laughs> Um, and even at a young age, Teresa is apparently, she's obsessed with stories about the saints and the great medieval knights and all the things we just talked about, right? Like the Christian wars against the Moors, they called them the Moors. And so she reads all these stories and she's kind of obsessed with it. And when she, when she's seven years old, her and her brother Roderigo run away from home to quote, seek martyrdom fighting the Moors. <laughs> And apparently their uncle catches them before they're able to get out of town and he brings them back and, and nothing comes of that further. But I think it's like indicative of like kind of the girl that Teresa was, right? She's kind of this, she like loves to read and she's like obsessed with these stories. And she also heavily ingrained with, with kind of these church doctrines from an early age. Did I miss anything, mom, and what you know of her young childhood? No, no, that's really accurate. But I was just going to comment that I think it tells us a lot about who she is as a strong person. I mean, the thought, the thought of she wanted to go and fight, right, the Moors, at, at the age of seven, it tells you about this internal strength she had and this conviction, right, to, to, have, a, to have influence in, in her world. I, I just think it's, um, it's a great story. Yeah. Right? yeah, and I didn't read, I, you know, I didn't, my other sources didn't talk tell a lot of other stories from her childhood. So that's kind of all I have of kind of her very young childhood. But when she's 11 is the next kind of seminal moment in her life is when her mom dies. So she's only 11 and Teresa is absolutely grief stricken and motherless. And she kind of dives into this notion that the Virgin Mary is her spiritual mother. And so the Virgin Mary kind of re replaces this kind of hole in her life now where her mother has gone. And I think, which was common at the time period, she was sent to a local school and that school was run by the nuns. So she wasn't sent to the nunnery. She wasn't sent her vows. She just was going to the school that was run by the nuns. And so she goes to school and she, she gets her education because she's from a fairly, you know, her family's pretty wealthy and all that. So she, she was one of the more educated women of that, of, of her town and of that time period. And after completing her regular schooling, she, her family was kind of trying to get her like we've already said they're kind of like dedicated Christians and they really were kind of trying to push her. It seems like a little bit towards the church and she resisted for a while, but after a little bit, she relents. And I, I wish I had a little bit more research about kind of that decision to relent, but finally in 1536 at the age of 20 um, and to the disappointment of her dad, she decides to enter not one of the stricter convents, but one of the more local 
easygoing Carmelite convents of the Incarnation. I guess there were more strict options and she chose <laughs> the, the less strict one. Um, also, apparently one of the sources I said said that that particular convent was built on top of land that had previously been a Jewish burial ground. I find that kind of dark. I wonder how much that kind of like went into her decision. She begins to read a lot, specifically about prayer. And she's, she's reading and studying kind of more deeply into these things. And she falls very ill. And this is, did you, did you, did you ever find out what it was that made her ill? Do they know what it was? She just gets really sick. You know, first of all, I don't think they did diagnosis in those days, right? Like, when she's sick, who knows what it was? But yeah, it was a turning point for her, this big, this illness she had. Yeah, because she's almost bedridden for a whole year. And she can't really do very, you know, a little, much some like other broads, you know, we had like Frida Kahlo was bedridden because of, of physical injuries, but, but um, Teresa w- was just ill and she, all she could do was kind of pray and read and think right? She, in her bed for a whole year. She also at this time, I think, receives um, a copy of the Spanish translation of St. Augustine's work, Confessions. And I don't know, have you read that one, Ma- that book, Mom? I have read that. It's, it's a really powerful, actually. Yeah. What is it, it? What is it about? Or what's the kind of like summary? Well, I'm trying to actually recount some things. It, it's just about thoughts on, you know, on faith and, and God and, um, Leadings of the Spirit and and uh, how we're to live our life. It's kind of a guideline, I believe. Yeah, the sources I found said that that book kind of helped her to realize that holiness was possible, and and that Teresa found a lot of solace in the fact that Saint Augustine once was a sinner, yes, who now was so holy. And she wrote in her autobiography that she was quote very fond of Saint Augustine for he was a sinner too. I mean, she related on some way. She felt herself to be a sinner. And then she really lobbed onto that of like, oh, there's hope for me too. If St. Augustine can overcome sin, maybe I can too. So I don't even know. I don't have a sense of what it was she felt like she was a sinner in. Do you, did you read any of that? No, not really. But you know what? what's really important about this part is that it actually begins the uh, setting the road for her future interests in her writings. So, so with Augustine, uh, she, she realized that there are things you can do to develop a deeper spiritual life, right? Like there's things you can do. It, it's not like you're doomed to, to be who you are now, that there's a pathway to growing deeper in your faith. And that leads her then to a lot of her work then that follows that you're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, later in her life, when she reflects on kind of this terrible time of illness, she talks about how she had, she, and, and this is specifically in relation to her spiritual spirituality is how she rose from the lowest stage recollection through the quote devotions of silence. These are like the stages as she lays them out. And then eventually she makes it to the devotions of ecstasy and the devotions of ecstasy is considered or was considered a perfect union with God. And during this final stage, she frequently experienced a rich, quote, blessing of tears. So these very intense emotional moments. So this is during her illness. And she, um, all, of, all of this during her illness, she nearly dies, but she ends up recovering. And she attributes her recovery to the miraculous intercession of St. Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who St. Joseph is. I didn't look him up. <laughs> But apparently she there was divine intervention, and that is what saved her from death. At this time, too, right? So right following upon this is when she starts to experience 
her her visions and ecstasy, she calls it. But not everybody at this time period in her life believed that she was actually connecting with God. So there were some people around her, some of her friends, sisters, other people in the community, they doubted kind of the, you know, as she's talking about how she's talking to God and going through these devotions and having all these connections, they're like, well, I don't know, girl, like this could be, you know, you could be talking with the devil. This is kind of like, you better be careful. She did. She did have a lot of people questioning her, but she was always seeking the wisdom of others to help discern with her if her visions are real or not. And so yes. that's come to the part where she went to a confessor, but she actually had multiple confessors, different people, and they were men who were known to be wise and deeply spiritual men. And from what I've read, I don't believe there were any women that really fit that role of being a confessor who would listen to you and then help you discern what you were hearing and what you think God was trying to tell you or God's spirit or or Jesus as they either one, however they interpret that. So she wasn't so confident to say, what I'm experiencing is the truth. I have no doubts. She really did listen to the voices of people around her trying to be open to seeing what was the truth because it was also thought that Satan talked to people too, right? I think you mentioned mm-hmm. that. It could be the voice of the devil or or evil, right? And so how do you know if that's really the voice of God? And, and she really tried to discern that with the help of many people. Did um, Was it common to have a confessor? Like as a nun, did you get like a, are you like assigned a confessor generically or did you just get a confessor when you had like some, you know, I don't know much about the Catholic organization and like. That's a good, I'm not quite sure, but this is where I'm going to get a stab at it. I think a lot of the religious orders did have priests that would come in and they'd hear like their confession, right? Like a regular confession, right? And so that person could also be a person who could advise on what you're doing. Mm. So I think it's a common language, but I do know what I read about Teresa is that she, she actually sought out certain people because she wanted to get somebody who she thought could really listen to her and hear her. Cause there were some people who totally disregarded what she was having. Like they didn't believe in her. Right. So she, she had to kind of seek people who could hear her and listen to her. So she, yeah, she had to kind of do some work to find somebody, right. Who would listen to her. Well, and I imagine, you know, given the context of everything we talked about at the beginning here, you know, if you were thought to be consorting with the devil or, and whatnot, you know, we're, we're still basically in the inquisition. Like there were still inquisitors and actually through her life, she ends up, I don't want to spoil anything in the future. So, so being wrong and being, thinking you're divine and then being told you're not divine by like the authorities was like a heresy. very a punish, punishable. It was heresy. It's punishable by death. I'm sure. It was heresy what it was. She had to always be careful about that. Her, her life was always at risk because of that. Cause she, people yeah. Critical eye of her, you know, watching over. And I her. think you know now, you know, looking back at the last couple of weeks, we did too of the the previous nuns. I didn't really think about that when we were talking about you know Catherine and Hildegard. Both of them also faced those questions and were were questioned by the church authorities. And and to fail those quote tests that they would kind of put you under, you know, it was dangerous to be somebody who spoke to God, a woman especially who spoke to God at that time period. But also, I think anybody since. The veil was thin between <laughs> the the unity and the balance of power at this time period. It was really dangerous. So she goes to her confessor. At this time, it was Jesuit Francis Borgia. And he said, no, no, these seem like you're, they're, they're truly divine. Don't worry about it. But nevertheless, she is 
I, I, I don't know if she was scared or, or why, but Teresa kind of starts a, starts a, a further deep dive and she begins doing what's called the mortifications of the flesh, which that is not a term. I, I think that's a familiar term to Catholics since we didn't grow up Catholic. I didn't, I didn't know what that was. So I had to look it up um, and mortifications of the flesh. It's basically the imitation of Jesus suffering and death by crucifixion. So it involves fasting and abs abstinence, kneeling, wearing sackcloth, which was like this really uncomfortable, itchy, terrible burlapy type fabric, and also flagellation, like whipping, suffering those actual wounds. So it seems like at this time period, Teresa, that like that's kind of how she kind of goes further in that direction as well. This kind of like very extreme and kind of like Catherine, that aesthetic life that's kind of very severe. She kind of enters this this time period. And then this is where in my notes, at least I have that she starts to have her visions. Is that, is that what you understand too? Yeah. Yeah. She did start having them then. Yeah. In June, on June 29th, apparently in 1559, Teresa has a vision wherein Jesus Christ himself presented himself to her in bodily form and uh, nobody else could see him. It was just her. She could see him, but he presented himself to her. And she continues to have these these similar visions for more than two years. There was a different vision she had that a seraph drove a fiery point of a golden lance repeatedly through her heart, causing her terrible spiritual and bodily pain. She described it. I have a quote from her about it because she writes about it in her autobiography. She said, I saw in his hand a long spear of gold. And at the point, there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with the great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. Uh, end quote. And this like this particular kind of pain, it kind of becomes her whole M.O. Like she the rest of her life, she kind of seeks to imitate this life and suffering of Jesus. And there's a phrase a lot of people associate with her that there's this common phrase that says, quote, Lord, either let me suffer or let me die. And that is like a, a phrase that's like commonly associated with her. Um, and at the same time, she's also having what's called raptures. Um, and Teresa also called that that uh, raptures and ecstasy for Teresa are kind of the same word. Teresa explained a rapture as the soul advancing towards truth and the spiritual world becomes more real than the physical world. The spiritual world is older than the real world. It existed for eternity in God, whereas the physical wor world is his creation. Um, and in one, she describes it in one of her in interior castle. She says, quote, God unites the soul with himself in a way which none can understand save it and he, and even the soul, and she's talking about her soul or the person undergoing the, the rapture, even the soul itself does not understand this in such a way as to be able to speak of it afterwards, though it is not deprived of its interior senses, for it is not like one who suffers a swoon or a paroxysm so that it can understand nothing either within itself or without, the position in this case, as I understand it, is that the soul has never been so fully awake to the things of God or had such light or such knowledge of his majesty. This may seem impossible 
Because if the faculties are so completely absorbed that we might describe them as dead, and the senses are so as well, how can the soul be said to understand this secret? She says, I cannot say, nor perhaps can any creature but the creator himself. So she talks about how the bot, like basically your body can almost, it seems like you're in death. Like the person might seem dead, but they're still having these experiences, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and he, uh, in these trances, right? Then they say she was literally in these trances. She looked like she was like not present at all. Yeah. She said that, quote, for when he means to enrapture this soul, it loses its power of breathing with the result that although its other senses sometimes remain active a little longer, it cannot possibly speak. At other times, it loses all its powers at once. And the hands and body grow so cold that the body seems no longer to have a soul. Sometimes it even seems doubtful if there is any breath in the body. This lasts only for a short time. I mean, only for a short period at any one time, because when this profound suspension lifts a little, the body seems to come partly to itself again and draws breath, though only to die once more, and in doing so, give fuller life to the soul. Complete ecstasy, therefore, does not last long. And then she describes that, like, after a rapture happens... And like you, your body starts to kind of come, you, you get control over your body again, but your soul is affected for a long time and you're very weak and you seem to be kind of asleep and asleep to any affections, but affection for God. So those are raptures. And indeed in her own raptures, they say that she levitated. Yes. I read that too. Wasn't and she even asked the nuns to help hold her down sometimes. Did you yes. They asked her sisters to hold her down. And she was also, apparently she was very embarrassed about the levitation. She, uh, for, for whatever reason, she, she th- was embarrassed about it. So she asked her sisters to hold her down. It's so, that's so interesting. You know, we, with some of the other women who've had these visions, m- modern psychologists talk about like, was it, was it temporal lobe ep- uh, epilepsy? You know, where your body like stiffens and like goes up like that. And it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to know, you know, nobody at that time period had any sort of diagnoses for any of that. But they, when she describes this, this rapture, it does sound like some sort of seizure of some kind, right? Yeah. But you know, what's kind of interesting about what you're just talking about. It's kind of interesting to think about that. Cause I think you, your listeners are going to think about this too, is we've always wondered about the soul, right? Like the soul, mm. is that a separate part of us or is that... Is that, a, a, you know, is that uh, the same as our body when we talk about our soul? But I love how Teresa is talking about the soul as being like this, this presence of God that is within her, right? That's separate from her body. I think that's really fascinating to contemplate that. Yeah. I mean, so this is, I'm, she, you know, these visions, as with the other, the other nun visionaries we've talked about is, you know, she becomes really popular for having these visions. She becomes kind of like this public figure in Avila. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, these, I, I don't, you know, I, we focused a little bit on these seizures and visions and they ha- they happen for a number of years, though not for necessarily her whole life. So as this is kind of happening, it's hard to, it's hard for me to kind of align at which point what kind of happens in the sequence of things. But we talked a little bit ago about how she had joined kind of one of more of the easygoing cloisters. But mm-hmm. Teresa here is diving deep into this, like these mortifications. She's having these visions mm-hmm. and, and apparently she starts to become very agitated about the laxity rules in her cloister. Oh, the quote original idea of the cloister was to provide this closed environment where nuns could pray and strengthen their spiritual practice away from the outside world. 
But at this particular convent she was at, wealthy people and politicians could just kind of come in and talk with people. And the conversations weren't really about God. They were about all the things that were happening in the world at the time. And I'm sure that includes kind of all of this fallout of the unification and inquisition, all that stuff, right, is probably all a part of what was being talked about. Um, And Teresa longed for a return to the old ways of the convent. And she resolves to create a new reformed Carmelite convent. And she gets the support and approval from her spiritual advisor, uh, different than the, the other guy we talked about before. He was a Franciscan priest named Peter of Alcantara. And then a friend of hers, Guimara de Oya, or Uya, um, was a woman who had a bit of means, a rich woman, and she decides to fund the project for Teresa. And in 1562, they found the San Jose Convent, or St. Joseph in the translation from Spanish. Um, And it's a little house with a little chapel, apparently. And this is a a new convent she's created. Not one of the giant old German churches, you know, we think of Hildegard and those, but this is, you know, this is a tiny little homegrown convent. And compared to the other convents around at the time and the one she came from, San Jose was very poor. It didn't have all these like hundreds of, wealthy patrons coming in every day and the locals were really upset about it they were like what is going on here we don't like this it's not supported um and people were trying to kind of shut it down like right from the get-go people hated it but there were a couple of very influential patrons including apparently her local bishop who approved it they, they approved of her creating this new convent and so slowly but surely it starts to kind of gain public approval and so in march 1563, the next year, Teresa moves into the new convent. And as she does so, she kind of takes on these new vows or revised vows of abject poverty and renunciation of property ownership. And she also, before she does this, she gets permission from the Pope. She starts to like run these things up the whole flagpole. So I, you know, for for various reasons, she, she makes sure she like gets approval for everything. She probably cuz she's really smart and she knows she needs that if she's going to survive, right? So the pope gives her his stamp. She takes these new vows and these new vows kind of become the foundation of the sort of constitution of the convent. This new convent is exactly what Teresa wants it to be. It's like a return to these old stricter monastic rules. She doesn't even stop there though. She kind of takes them further and these things we just talked about her the flagellation Um, All that stuff, she kind of brings that in too. And she also, their convent, I had never heard this word before, discalciation. They were discalciated nuns. Do you know what that means, mom? Yes, I do. It means they didn't wear shoes. They didn't didn't wear shoes. shoes. Discalciation is shoeless. They were these shoeless convent. And this is like return to super, super old school, strict nunnery. Yeah. And she takes these first five years as the, after she moves in there, she really kind of remains in seclusion yes, in, in prayer and in writing. Yeah. Five years that you, she was in seclusion. I mean, but Hildegard was in seclusion for like 40. You know, you compare, you compare these kind of crazy nun stories and you're like, wow, five years doesn't seem like a lot compared to what some other people did. <laughs> but in this time of seclusion is when she writes her autobiography, so she was encouraged, I think, by all of her advisors and confessors to start writing down these experiences, these visions, 
these progressions of faith and of communication with God. She also, so in 1565 is when she writes her autobiography. Then she also writes one of her seminal works, The Way of Perfection, and where she's kind of cloistered away. In 1576, she actually is undergoes an official inquisition. A whole bunch of people get uppity again about, about the, her convent. And because she, she, her writings and her wisdom, people are like, she's very popular because of her visions. People will show up for advice and through like the gate, you know, through the gate of the convent, she'll like give them advice back. And she's kind of the spiritual advisor in, in a way to like a lot of the people of Avila. But the people who don't like these like super conservative ways are, you know, c- continue to be unhappy about it, even though she had the official approval of the, the Pope and everybody else. What I, what I remember about that is when they started the Inquisition again, after she'd already started this reformed convent, then, then she actually agreed to uh, go in to like retire and, and, not, and not pursue any more expansion of this new convent mm-hmm. for several years. Yeah, for a couple years, she stops all of this, this kind of reformation work because she is under the thumb of the Inquisition and she appeals um, to the Pope. And after like a long, after a long period of appeals, he, she finally kind of gets reinstated and is allowed to kind of recontinue her work. And what she ends up doing is forming the same type of strict convent all over. She opens all these new convents. And I think like in total in her life, she opens 17 convents Mm -hmm. and um, due to her work, at least the same number, if not more um, monasteries for monks open with the same kind of stricter return you know return to these kind of i mean what do you call them like strict I, 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 what do you call this this branch of the church i guess conservative what i want to add with this is you know she became good friends with saint, saint john of the cross you might have come across his name a little bit in your research they became very wow. very close friends and he was in the male counterpart to hers and he wanted to reform his male uh, monastery. And so uh, he was going through that same kind of reformation for the men that she was doing for the women. And he actually went through a lot of tough times too in the same process, you know, because people become threatened by these these changes. So yeah, it, it really started to spread, you know, people became interested in that. Yeah. Well, and at the time period, you know, we think about it, there, there's a reason that like in the U.S., it's in the Constitution, the separation of church and state. Like in this time period, there was a lot of influence between the politics and the church and a lot of those going goings ons. Right. So so new movements within the church kind of threatened the way of life for, I think, the way a lot of people were kind of enjoying their life back then. Right. And and they didn't want to lose the stability of that. And this is what is kind of good to add right here is you'll remember the Protestant Reformation is happening almost at the same time now. All right. So that had to do with Martin Luther, who was, you know, did his thesis. He nailed on the door. He he wanted the church to change and really become different than it was like he wanted the 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 service to be in a language that people could understand instead of just Latin. And, um, and so, uh, as that reformation is happening, I could see where all, all of a sudden the church, the Catholic church is looking at itself too, right? Where, what, what's happening to us. And, and I think Teresa was probably influenced by that in a way thinking, no, we, 
we don't want to become more liberal. We don't want to become, we don't want to, you know, get lost in the Protestant Reformation, but we want to go back to where we were, right? So she's kind of tightening down, even though the Catholic Church is also going through a Reformation, which is, it's interesting to know that. So all the churches were changing in that way. Well, yeah, because in England, Henry VIII wanted to get divorced. And the Catholic Church wouldn't allow it. And so that, you know, that's like a huge origin story of how the church starts to splinter. So I'm sure that like Teresa being very smart is also witnessing kind of some of those happenings from afar. And the Pope is too, for that matter. So, you know, when she gets the, it's interesting because we talked about this a little bit with Catherine too, but, you know, you go to the Pope for papal papal approval, papal state approval, mm-hmm. you know, and and they had a lot of reasons for wanting this this kind of return to kind of this more conservative view because it was really fracturing the church and their power over all of these countries. Even though obviously she was thrilled to have the Pope's blessing, I think like as, as you know, looking back today, we can also see why the Pope would have wanted that, right? Like, why is it convenient for the church to approve these people that are really trying to bring back the religion kind of this this religious state sort of sort of being. So I don't have, you know, I didn't get as much research in about these books, Mom. Do you want to talk more about some of her writings? Well, I'll talk a little bit about The Interior Castle because that's a fascinating book. I've actually read it a couple times. Um, it kind of fits with what you talked about very early in her life when she read the confessions, right? That you could, you, you could, grow deeply deeper spiritually if you do certain things like like you can get closer and closer to god or closer to jesus as you become more connected right and and more engaged in prayer and 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 focus and the interior castle is is exactly about that it's about seven different rooms in the castle and each room leads closer to the heart of jesus or to the Christ. And so you can, you, you learn to overcome, like, uh, one thing is like looking for things that hold you back, like, like evil things that prevent you from going farther. And, um, and so she wrote this whole book to help. Actually, it was written initially for her sisters that were in the, the same monastery with her of how to go deeper and deeper into your faith. Uh, but that's the other thing that she has written is she wrote a practice of prayer. It's called the practice of Theresian prayer, which is Lectio Divina. And it's a kind of prayer in which you focus on scripture and then you focus on how scripture is talking to you. And then you focus on how God is speaking to you through the words of scripture. And, and so it's like a contemplative, you haven't really talked about that word much, but she was like, a contemplative uh, spiritual leader too, in which a lot of quiet prayer, a lot of listening to God kind of prayer. And that was a, that was a big focus of her, of her uh, time, of her spiritual time. You know, like when she was alone a lot, she spent a lot of time in prayer and reading of scripture. So she was really a leader in this kind of prayer practice. And she taught a lot of the other sisters about how to pray in this way. Yeah. And they, I mean, I think they're, and really, truly, she's considered like one of the leaders in Catholic Reformation of that time period that, that like, yeah, her works were widely published and widely known and widely, widely read. And part of that is, you know, she opened all these convents and, and then they had the, the monasteries as well. They all kind of linked in together like that. So, uh, she survives that inquisition. 
she, you know, she gets papal approval again. She's approved by the church. She continues to open her convents. She's traveling around Spain, opening convents in lots of various places, Andalusia, Palencia, Soria, Granada, Burgos. On one of these trips to her, between her convents, she falls ill and she dies. This is 1582. And she dies either on the 5th or the 15th of October, which is, and I say 5th or 15th, which sounds crazy, but what was happening was they were literally changing the calendars over on the day that she died from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, and they jump 10 days as a result. (laughs) So she dies on the 5th slash 15th. The Feast of St. Teresa is on October 15th. So that's kind of widely thought to be the day she dies. But um, apparently her last words were, my Lord, it is time to move on. Well then, may your will be done. Oh, my Lord and my spouse, the hour that I have longed for has come. It is time to meet one another. She was canonized by the church in 1622, which is only 40 years after her death. Some of our other broads, it took them a lot longer for the church to kind of canonize them. And I think, you know, that has to do, I'm sure, with a lot of political things in the place the church was at. Um, she was up for, the, she was a candidate for national patron saint of Spain, but she lost it to St. James the Apostle. But since then, she had also, she's become one of the patron saints of Spain in general. And then uh, in 1970, Pope Paul VI names her the first female doctor of the church. And right after the Pope names her the doctor of the church is when he also names Catherine a doctor of the church. And then after that even was Hildegard. There's only four female doctors of the church. And um, if you haven't listened to our other episodes before this about Hildegard and about Catherine, um, a doctor of the church um, is a, is a de- designation for someone who's had great influence on the theology of the church and the development of the church. So just a regular saint's not necessarily a doctor. That's like an especially esteemed uh, position. But only four women have ever been named doctor of the church. And we've already talked about this is she's our third. Teresa's our third. So, mom, let's circle back. You know, one of the things you said you were interested in talking about is her legacy and like why is she still so widely read today? I I would love to hear more about that. First of all, you know, I start out by saying that I have read her because I was interested in learning about her. When I go back about my own experience, the church has failed people in many ways. Some of the doctrines, some of the things that that we say we believe and follow, they don't really touch our lives in a way that it makes a difference with how we live. And yet, when you talk to some of these uh, sisters who have these experiences, these spiritual experiences, it draws an interest into thinking that there's something more to our spiritual life than just going to church and sitting in the pew, that God is can be present to each person in a way that that strengthens our lives and that makes a difference in the world we live in. And I think, Mm. Teresa, I think that is true for her and her writings. You might not understand everything she has written, but yet there's something that's that's kind of interesting. It like piques our interest in, in how it reveals, for me, it reveals the presence of God in a way that I can connect with more than I can sometimes with the, with the, with the formal church. I mean, do you... Do you find like her work, is it very accessible still, even though it was written in the 1500s? Or does it feel, is it, is it hard to read? Is it like Shakespeare to, to some people, you know? 
I, I think some of it, like the interior castle, I think some of that is hard to internalize and to know what it means. But like her Lectio Divina prayers, her, her style of prayer, that I do that myself. And, and we do that in my church. And so that that's something common we, we do. But back to the interior castle, if you don't understand parts of what she writes, it doesn't take away from the fact that we can always develop our spiritual side, that there's, there's a journey we can be on. And, and I think that, that that's the piece that we can hang on to with her writings, right? Mm. That, that mm-hmm. we're just not doomed to be who we are right now, but there's a path of, of growth for us that she can lead us in, even if you don't understand or even if you don't agree with parts of it. So, I mean, that's the piece that interests me, but I'm also a pastor. So we'll just hold that up and, and mark <laughs> it, right? Like for some people, they might not even think God's present. So it all just means nothing. But if you're contemplating, a spiritual life and you think that there's some there i think i think it's intriguing some of the stuff she's written about in our spiritual journeys it's such a it's so interesting like these these studies inward are always so interesting to me and like i think of her and i know they're totally different women and not even close not even you know but i think of her kind of on the same spectrum as frida kahlo and i think i said that a little bit earlier where frida was trapped in her bed and she looked inward and she created all of this art that is that has really kind of affected people for so long. But it was all looking inward because she was stuck in bed and she couldn't get out. And I think of like Teresa is kind of on the same spectrum in, in the sense that the work that she did was done from this place of being stuck, both literally when she was ill, but then also like as a woman, like at this time period, you know, one of the things I've talked about in the other episodes about these visionaries is how women of this time period, you know, they were treated like dogs. They couldn't own property. You know, they, they were tied, their value was tied to their man their you know, in their life, if they, if they had one and in the church as nuns, like nuns had like no power, like, but they were safe in their cloister. You know, the cloister provided protection and it fed them. And so they, that was like a place of safety and refuge for women. And especially for women of the time period who maybe didn't really care for, for what was outside those walls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's interesting is that these visions that these women had to me and the, these raptures, like that is what elevated their status in their time periods. Mm-hmm. That is what made them somebody worth listening to and going to advice for. Mm-hmm. And I said this before, you know, when we... I'm always interested in the question of like, well, did they actually see visions? Like, or mm-hmm. was it, or was it, like I said, like, was it a seizure? Seizure? Did they have epilepsy? Did they have, you know, all these other various things? Do they eat a bad mushroom? You know, like, like quite literally people have, you know, people have visions today that are, that you can connect into science more because we know science better and we understand the body better. But I do think that, you know, these women, all of the women, at least that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, I do think that they really truly believed their visions were true and that, you know, or else they wouldn't have risked their lives to go to these church leadership and to make these movements and to create these great works because heresy was right around the corner to, to be called a heretic was the end of it. Right. And the heretics didn't make the books really in terms of history books and and the legacies of the church. I I think, I think the other women that you have talked, talked about as well as Teresa, I think, you know, they really believed that what they were had experienced was worth the risk of their own life in order to share it with the world. Like, I, I think that they, they, they realized that it was, it was not something for them just to keep within themselves. And I want to say, 
even though you're right, like who knows, maybe, maybe some of them did have seizures and some things like that. But yet you have to say there had to be something truthful about what they did because otherwise people would just have thought they, they would have discounted them. I mean, look how easily you could discount a woman in those days. And yet um, she became a real leader, well-respected. And I think that speaks to how what her visions, how her vision spoke to other people in their lives. Yeah, I mean, it certainly speaks. I mean, all of the women, all of these women did go to their confessors and they did make sure they did kind of check those boxes, um, which is something I don't think I really said in, in the in the previous episodes. And now that we're now that I am understanding, now that you explain more to how that worked with the confessor, it makes much more sense. Like the pieces fall into place a little bit more about how that works and how they did do it through the right channels. And so, uh, you know, I still can't help but but also be reminded, though, that the people that were giving her the thumbs up and the Pope stamping her approval, you know, everybody has ulterior motives too. That's true. So even though, you know, she, she, her visions were divine and she thought they were divine, whether or not the Pope really thought they were divine, who knows? (laughs) Yeah. But you know what what you're saying there is important though, is sometimes people do things for the wrong reasons or for the right reasons. Right. But what's amazing is is she survived regardless of the reasons. Even if the Pope had ulterior motives for letting her develop this or form this new convent, um, she did it for the reasons because she felt called to do that, to to deepen her spiritual life, right? It was a a spiritual journey. And so sometimes it doesn't matter. It's like what it tells us is that, that when women have courage and strength and they have something to share that's important is that nothing can stop them. If they're Nothing tenacious and consistent and, and they just that they just keep moving forward. And that's what makes all these women that you've been talking about so amazing and so important for us to learn about them. They give us courage in our own lives to go against barriers, to, to become people we, we didn't know we can be, right? Yeah. That's why they're broads we should know. Right. <laughs> that's why St. Teresa of Avila is a broad we should know. Thank you for being here today, Mom. I love um, talking with all this about you and talking about Teresa. What an interesting, interesting woman. Yeah, she's changed my life. I love reading her stuff. Yeah, well, you've piqued my interest. I'm I'm probably going to have to check out Interior Castle or maybe even her autobiography. Who knows? Because it sounds interesting. The palaces, the rooms you move through in your Interior Castle is like, it almost sounds like a fantasy novel, but then it's her her spiritual journey. (laughs) Who knows where it comes from? Well, thanks for being here. As always, it was a pleasure to have you and to, especially to have um, your expertise with the church and with and with faith, because I think that really provided an insight into not not just Teresa, but to all of the, the women we've been talking about and about the journeys they, they went on as a result of their experiences. As always, I love being with you on this. Thank you for inviting me. To learn more about Teresa de Avila, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. We've got some paintings of her and some of the great quotes we talked about during this episode. And while you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about Reverend Dr. Barbara Gorski. We've got her bio there and her picture. Hey, are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, I'm asking you, please help spread the word about us by sharing your favorite episode with friends and family. And better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those things really help new listeners to find us. 
Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed St. Teresa of Avila's story, then you should probably also check out a few of our other broad episodes, including Hildegard von Bingen and Catherine of Siena, other visionaries. And then we also have Christine de Pizan and Mother Teresa. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. Ooh.